Welcome to part one of our three-part series entitled, How to Stay Married Forever and Like It. If you are a guest with us today, uh, you may be here in response to receiving one of these cards. Uh, if so, we're very glad that you are here. If you appreciate what you're about to hear and would like to invite somebody else to come and join you for parts two and three, which will be next week and this following week, we do have more of these cards. There will be a stack of them right here on the front pew. Feel free to stop by after we are done and pick as many of those up as you would like. It had been my hope that at the beginning here of part one, I would be able to put a picture on the screen of both my wife and I immediately after we had been pronounced husband and wife. But I just moved here in July, and all of my wedding pictures are somewhere in the pre-Cambrian level of the basement, and it will take a very gifted archaeologist to somehow find where those pictures are. I I did manage to find uh, this particular photo, though. She's beautiful, isn't she? The appropriate response is to say a hearty amen at that point. So, yes, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, she's gorgeous, and she is smiling. And if you could see my face, uh, this is as I'm helping her down the steps uh, uh, just after the uh, ceremony has been completed. We're about to get into the getaway car. Uh, if you could see my face, I would be smiling too. Because this day, when we got married, was easily one of the happiest days of our lives. When we walked down the aisle, we knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God had brought us together, that this was the right person for us, and therefore it was indeed one of the happiest days of our lives. And if you ask either of us now, would you say, I do again? The answer is a resounding yes. Absolutely, we would. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yes, yes. That's a one person. And the reason we can say that is not because we are relational geniuses. My wife actually may be. I, I am not, all right? It, it's not because we got lucky. You know, some people say, that, oh, you know, they, they just got lucky, luck of the draw. Some people make it, some people don't. No, 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 no. That is not true. The reason why we can say today that absolutely, yes, we would say I do again is because we have applied some simple principles consistently over time. Simple principles consistently applied over time. Anyone can do this, including you. And it's these simple principles that I want to share with you in this series. So uh, without further ado, let us begin. If you really want to have a marriage that avoids the pain of divorce, if you really want to have a marriage that goes the distance and lasts happily and forever, then the best way to start is before you say, I do. And I hope that makes kind of intuitive sense, right? If you make mis- made a mistake and, and, and there's difficulties in your marriage after you say, I do, it's not the end. I mean, you can often work those things out, and it is indeed easier if you make a good selection before you get married. Uh, you know, who, next to the decision as to whether or not you will follow God, the question of who you will marry is the most important one that most of you will ever make. Who you marry will determine all kinds of things. It will dramatically impact where you live, what house you buy, whether you have children or not, how many you'll have, what careers you are able to pursue, how much money you will have, who you'll be friends with, who you won't be friends with, whether or not your life is happy, whether or not those around you are going to be happy. The legacy of your life 
All of these things and more are dramatically influenced by who you decide to marry. So you don't want to just settle for anyone. You want to find the right one. And with this in mind, how do you find Mr. or Mrs. Wright? Well, I wish we had more time this morning so that we could cover a a, a few more things, but let's at least deal with four keys, four keys to finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright. And we're going to get right to it. First key is this. Don't marry for love. Should I have the benediction now? Are we all done? We just move on from here, right? Okay. Don't marry for love. This is the first key. And if you're wondering what that's about, take your Bible. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you don't have a Bible with you, in the back of the pew in front of you, there is a pew Bible there. Look on page 16, Genesis chapter 24, verse 62. Genesis 24, beginning with verse 62. It's on page 16, again, in your pew Bible there. Uh, if we were to read earlier in Genesis 24, we would find a guy by the name of Abraham has had a son named, named Isaac. Isaac is of marrying age. Abraham gives careful instructions to his head servant to find a wife for Isaac that doesn't live near him. There were difficulties with the women in that area, and Abraham uh, said, I want you to go back to where I used to live, and I want you to find the person that God will guide you to and bring her back that Isaac can marry her. And that's where we join the story. Verse 62 of Genesis 24. says, Now Isaac had come from Ber Lahai Roi, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah, this is the woman that had been brought back by the servant, Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. This is where the custom came from, by the way. The bride will often cover her face. It's right here. This is where it began. Verse 66, then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he, what's that next word? And he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. She had died sometime earlier. I mean, just read this again. Verse 67, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah, so she became his wife, and he loved her. Did you see the order? He first married Rebekah. And then, it says, then he loved her. Now, by modern standards, I mean, how backwards is that? I mean, shouldn't Isaac have first figured out if he loved Rebecca first and then married her? Well, apparently not, and I think we can figure out why. You see, as it turns out, falling in love actually isn't that difficult. It happens all the time. Uh, We can love all sorts of things, some things that we should and some things that we shouldn't. And we can love all kinds of people some that we should and some that we shouldn't. In fact, as a pastor, uh, I've been asked to perform quite a few weddings over the years, and a tiny handful of those I have ended up declining. I'm sorry I've said, I can't do your wedding. You say, well, why would you do that? Because those couples making those particular requests had indeed been marrying for love, but were very clearly not marrying for life. 
In fact, maybe we can alter now uh, key number one. Don't marry for love, marry for life. Point being, when it comes to choosing a life partner in marriage, you need to take the long view and not pay attention merely to the present. Jesus, not particularly talking about marriage, but certainly the principle applies that he talks about here. Uh, This is from Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 28. Jesus says, which of you, wishing to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see if he has the resources to complete it. Otherwise, if he lays the foundation and is unable to finish it, everyone who sees him will ridicule him, saying, this man could not finish what he started to build. Or what king, on his way to war with another king, will not first sit down and consider whether he can engage with 10,000, the one coming against him with 20,000, And if he is unable, he will send a delegation while the other king is still far off to ask for terms of peace. In other words, Jesus is saying, think ahead, plan ahead, look carefully at what you have now, extrapolate into the future, and certainly this applies to marriage, choosing your prospective spouse. You see, if you are only going to marry someone for love, that may be great, Or, it may just be the state of mind that you have at this moment about your potential spouse in this particular time, in this particular place, in the present. If you are going to marry someone for life, however, that means you need to take the long view, and that means that you've got to pay attention to a number of very basic, practical things in your prospective spouse, such as... How does your prospective spouse deal with money? Do they know the value of a dollar? Are they a spender? Are they a saver? Are they careful with money? Do they spend it like water? Uh, How are they with children? You know, most marriages, statistically speaking, will have children of some description come into the marriage at some point. How How is your prospective spouse doing with kids now? Will they be a good parent to your children? Do you want what they have passed on to your progeny? What's the general direction of their life? Are they looking to live a life of service? Do they share your basic values? Based on what you know of them now, what do you think their future focus will be on? Will it be on home life, on work, hobbies, somewhere, something else? Where do they envision themselves five years from now, ten years from now? Uh, Based on what you know of them, uh, do do you feel like those are realistic plans? Uh, are, Are they good planners? More important still, what's their character like? Are they honest? Do they tell the truth? Do they keep their promises? Are they compassionate to those who are hurting? Do they stand by the strength of their convictions or are they waffling and unsure of themselves? You know, a little secret about marriage. Do not plan on your spouse changing much after you get married. I've heard many, often it's, often it's the wife, sometimes it's the husband or husband-wife-to-be They'll say, well, you you know what, I I understand there's this anger problem, but I'm sure when we're married, all of that will go away. Uh, The nagging, the whining that I hear now, oh, the, the warmth of our married love will melt all of that like an ice cube on a sidewalk in House, Texas in August. No, that's not how it works. You know, praise the Lord, by the power of God, sometimes people do change after they get married, but you should not plan on that happening. And most important of all, when we're thinking about basic things, compatibility in the basics, what about spiritual compatibility? Is your prospective spouse roughly on the same spiritual level as you are? 
You know, the Bible is actually crystal clear about this one. We're not going to take the time to read it here, but you can look up 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. And there we are told that we, when it comes to marriage, we are not to be, quote, unequally yoked. Now, now the picture here, the picture, this is an ancient picture. Unequally yoked, there was a yoke that would hold together two oxen that were plowing in a field. You know, this is before John Deere, etc. And if they were unequally yoked, if you had one oxen that was stronger or weaker than the other, then the furrows would go like this around the field, and the harvest would be less because the ground was not used effectively. And so God here is using this analogy for marriage. He says, don't be unequally yoked. Now, in in practical terms, what does that mean? Well, it means that you shouldn't date someone, much less marry somebody who is not roughly on your same spiritual level. If you're an atheist, marry an atheist. If you're a Catholic, marry a Catholic. If you're a Baptist, marry a Baptist. If you're an Adventist, marry an Adventist. And even within these categories, everyone who's listening, if you've been around a little while, you know that even within those categories, there can be great spiritual differences. Just because your name is on the book of a certain church doesn't mean that you're on the same spiritual level as somebody else who has their name on the book in that particular church. So think carefully. Weigh these things out. And how come, you may be wondering, because regardless of our particular brand of spirituality, what is spiritual in our lives is ultimate. It is the core of our lives. It is the storehouse of all that is meaningful with us. It is that which is most important to us. It informs and affects all we do and all that we are. And if you marry someone who doesn't share those ultimate values, it can and will inevitably lead to one of two things, trouble or spiritual and moral compromise. And no one needs those things in their marriage. So look carefully at the basics. Look for the long haul. And right now, I'm guessing, I'm guessing that some of you, perhaps some of you, particularly at the the younger end of the spectrum, you're looking maybe forward here to to getting married in the future. I'm guessing that some of you might be thinking something like this. Pastor Shane, all this long view stuff, focusing on the mundane basic compatibility. Where's the romance in that? I mean, you're taking all the fun out of this, right? You know, I remember when Darlene and I first started dating. Uh, She looked great, still does. And and I remember the first time that I held her hand. Man, that was exciting. That was, they were feeling like no other, right? And and when when you're dating someone special like that, you think about them all the time. You look forward to eating lunch with them, to talking with them, going on walks with them, et cetera, et cetera. It is romance and it is exciting. And you cannot build a successful, happy lifetime marriage just on that excitement. You know, Darlene and I had to grow well beyond that initial excitement to build what we have today. Now, don't misunderstand. Romance can last till death do you part if you play your cards right. We'll talk about that in parts two and three, so I hope you can join us for that. But when it comes to marriage, romantic excitement is the icing on the cake, not its bread and butter. It's how you celebrate your relationship, not how you sustain it. Happy marriages that last forever are instead day-to-day relationships that thrive best when basic compatibilities are in place. So don't marry for love, marry for life. Pay attention to practical, basic compatibility issues before you say, I do. 
That's the first key if you want to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright. It leads directly to a second. If you have your Bible, take a look at page 422, Psalm 130, verse 5. Page 422, Psalm 130, verses 5, and we're also going to read verse 6. Uh, the book of Psalms, uh, much of it written by David, other portions written by uh, Solomon, other writers. This is uh, God-inspired poetry that expresses eternal truths. Let's see what it says here. Psalm 130, beginning with verse 5. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. I wait it says, for the Lord. A second key to finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright is to take your time. Wait on the Lord. Ask him to guide you. He will wait on him. You see, some things in life can happen fast, but the best things in life often take time, and finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright is definitely one of those things. I am so glad that the Lord brought Darlene into my life. I mean, my marriage has been a, a manifold, abundant, overflowing blessing. It's, it's a great thing, and to get there, it takes time, including before we said, I do. And while this key of taking your time was important back in the days when that psalm, Psalm 130, was written. It is absolutely crucial to use in our day because there has been a very specific change in how marriages are made in our day compared to back then. Story. When Darlene and I were just getting to know one another and we're on the verge of, 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 of dating exclusively, uh, we were at Sunset Lake Summer Camp in the foothills of Mount Rainier, uh, Washington State. Uh, it was a beautiful camp. Uh, in those days, it was fairly small, but a beautiful spot. Sundays were really the only days that we had off. Uh, we would have free time from, from noon on Sunday to about 3 o'clock or so. And I had asked Darlene for the very first time to go out on a date with me. And I chose well. I mean, I aimed for the absolute top of the culinary food chain in our area. We were going to go to Pizza Hut. And she said yes, and I was thrilled. And I was particularly thrilled because I knew the mode of transportation we would use to go on this date. She would be riding in my car, my first car. It was a 1973 Mercury Capri 2.6 liter V6, uh, uh, their German-made uh, four-speed uh, manual transmission, bucket seats. It was an absolute babe magnet. Okay, women, I mean, they would, they would just go, oh, when I would drive by in that car. And I knew that this was one of the reasons why Darlene had said yes, because she was probably thinking to herself, not only will I get to be with Shane, but I will get to ride in his car. Uh, this car, I paid $300 for it. It was probably overpriced uh, at, that, at that amount in retrospect. But at the time, I mean, this, this, was, this was the cat's meow. It was yellow, mostly, right? Uh, not all of the Bondo had been painted, so there was some parts of it that stood out a little bit more than others, but it was, it was mostly yellow. Uh, the, the trunk had no lock, so I had run cables through the frame, and, and there was a padlock sticking out of the back, and that way I could keep all of my valuable things that others might be tempted to steal from this car uh, safe in there. So I, I'd washed it, I'd vacuumed things out, 
it had some interesting smells to it, but uh, I knew that this would only just kind of add to the masculine ethos that was just roaring through this car. So I said, I'll pick you up at your cabin. I drive over there. I, I get out. I open the door for her. She gets inside and just, you know, experiencing the, this wonderful engineering. Close the door and we go on our date. It was perfect. A man and his car and his babe. <laughs> and we go into Pizza Hut and we order pizza. Uh, I had a root beer float. I mean, it, it, the food was perfect. Uh, the conversation was heavenly. We talked about the present and the future. I mean, it was, it was, it was absolute just tops. Sadly, time marches on. And I looked at my watch. Oh, I guess we got to get back. I said, hey, well, you know, let's, uh, let's clear the table. Let's head back there. So we go outside, and I open the door on her side. She gets in, sits down, I close the door, and fire up that German V6, and up the hill we go and purred up there into the parking lot. I, I pulled around in what used to be the main parking lot there, right next to the cafeteria, and I look over at her, and she looks over at me. I said, uh, I enjoyed our time together. I said, I did too. I said, uh, I'm glad we had this time. Oh, me too. Well, uh, I guess I'll see you later. Okay, I'll see you later. And she opens the door and she steps out of the car, leans down, waves goodbye. And, and she closes the door. And the right rear blinker on my right rear fender fell out onto the ground. Do you have any idea how hard it is to look cool when there are parts falling off of your car? And the girl that you are most trying to impress is doing this. And I knew something was terribly wrong, right? So I mean, I whip my door open, I go back there and I see this and I look at my blinker and I look at Darlene and I look at my blinker and I look at Darlene and I say, you broke my car. She said, I didn't break your car. I said, you slammed the door. So I didn't slam the door. And I tell you what, I mean, it is impossible to be putting the parts back on your car and look cool in front of anybody. I mean, I'm looking around, I reach down, I grab the blinker and I stuff it in there, try to get it so it would stay roughly in a spot. I get in the car and I huff, don't say another word and drive away back to my camp. Those of you that are considering getting married, you need to know something. Dating is designed to hide flaws. It's designed that way. You say, how do you know? I can guarantee you, if you're going to go out on a first date, uh, gentlemen, if you haven't showered all week long, you will shower that night. You will find clean clothes, or at least ones that smell less, right? You will brush your teeth. You will comb your hair. You will be ready when, when you go out on a date because you do not wish to present all of your flaws here on your first date, right? And some people, some people continue to do that for a very long time. And the only way that you are going to be able to find out the flaws that this person actually has is to be with them long enough to see them. You see, sometimes all it takes is a first date and a blinker falls off and you learn pretty quickly that somebody's got a short temper, all right? 
But a lot of the other times, it takes a good long time to figure it out. You know, there's an old saying that says, go into marriage with both eyes open and after marriage with one eye shut. Because when you say, I do, what you are really saying, on the one hand, you're saying, I do commit to be faithful to this person, etc., for until death do we part. And you are very realistically saying, I do covenant that I will live with this set of flaws for the rest of my life. You see, if you ask God to guide you in choosing your spouse, he will show you the wonderful traits of a prospective spouse, and he will show you the hidden flaws that you need to see before you say, I do. He will do this for you if you trust him, if you ask him, but he rarely does it overnight. So you've got to stick around long enough to figure out when you've seen the real person. You've got to take your time. Which, of course, brings up the question, how much time, how long do you have to date before you know if this is Mr. or Mr. Right? You know, after nearly 30 years of doing pastoral ministry and pre-marriage counseling for dozens of couples and seeing countless marriages both thrive and fail, I have some pretty firm opinions about this. And I know some of you may not like what I'm going to say next, but here's the best that I know. If you've dated for less than a year, forget it. Don't, get, don't even consider getting married. Because anyone can fake it for a year. You might say, well, why would somebody try to fake it all that long? You know, we're not going to go into all the the psychology and whatnot behind it. Let's just say it happens. It happens. Anyone can fake it for a year. Instead of doing less than a year, what I would suggest is that you follow the two-year rule, and it's just that. The two-year rule is don't consider getting married until you've dated for at least two years. By the way, this includes those of you that have known each other since birth. I've had people come up and say, oh, but Pastor Shane, I grew up, I went to school with this person and whatnot. I said, did you date? No, we didn't date. Ah, that's different. Because when you start to date, there's there's a difference in that relationship. That's why we date, right? Okay, because there is a difference there. And you cannot know that person in that type of relationship unless you engage in that type of relationship. Two years minimum. Two years minimum. I won't marry a couple who hasn't done it. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Because whenever I presented about this before and I give the two-year two rule, somebody inevitably comes up afterwards and says, ah, Pastor Shane, we didn't follow that at all. Uh, we got married after dating for 45 seconds, and we are still happily married today, okay? Now, some of you are thinking that, right? You're nodding your heads, right? To which I would say, praise the Lord, and you are the exception. In the Western world where dating is the norm and arranged marriages are exceedingly rare, you are the exception. Because for every marriage like yours, my pastoral experience says that there are 20 others that didn't make it because they married without knowing what they were getting into. They married without knowing who they were getting married to. It led to terrible troubles and ultimately to divorce. So don't let it happen to you. God can and will show you Mr. or Mrs. Right, but you've got to use this second key. Take your time. Which brings us to the third and some would say rather controversial key. Uh, Take a look at page 770 in your pew Bible. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 18. If you're not familiar with this part of the Bible, 1 Corinthians is the first letter that a guy by the name of Paul, sometimes referred to as the Apostle Paul, uh, wrote to this church in Corinth. 
Corinth had some unique difficulties. It, it, it was a challenging place to be, uh, including things that apply to our discussion here, and Paul is about to address them. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, this is what Paul says here, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Flee, it says, from sexual immorality. The third key to finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright is this. Save physical intimacy for marriage. That is, refuse to live or sleep together before you say, I do. And I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor Shane, that is old school. Nobody follows that anymore. I mean, everybody sleeps together before they get married. Everybody, everybody seems to be living together before they get married. And I would say, well, I mean, not quite everyone, but there are an awful lot. You know, 2019, a Pew Research Center survey found that uh, in America, people ages 18 to 44, 59% had cohabitated with someone uh, prior to marriage. Uh, cohabitation, that's just, you know, the, the technical term for living together, sleeping together prior to getting married. Uh, if you uh, bump the age bracket a little bit, ages 30 to 44, the share of the population that is cohabitated at some time in their lives is a whopping 71%. And why do people do it? Actually, research shows that there's a fairly small pool of answers to that question. Uh, some people say finances, you know, ch two can live uh, cheaper than one. Uh, some people say, well, just basic needs of companionship. But many people at the top of their reason list for, for moving together, in together, is that it is a trial run for marriage. In essence, couples are saying, well, we're not sure if marriage will work out for us or not, so let's do a test run. And at first glance, it almost makes sense. I mean, before you buy a car, what do you do? You test drive it, right? Okay. Uh, before you buy a house, you, you test it out. There's all kinds of tests that are done. Tests for radon, tests for pests and termites and structural integrity. A, so maybe that should work for sleeping together, living together, etc. as well. Two things. Number one, if you're worried about physical intimacy working out in marriage, and, and consequently you feel you need a test run before marriage, uh, let me just assure you, I've, I've spoken with the manufacturer and all the plumbing will work as designed. You'll be fine. Uh, compatibility issues are rare. You'll be just fine. No need to do a test run for that purpose, okay? And how about the whole idea of not just sleeping together, but actually living together before marriage? There's a whole bunch that we could say about that. Let me just bring it down to this. Does it work? It's supposed to be a test run for marriage. It's supposed to improve your odds of finding marital happiness. Does it work? According to the Word of God, no. And as it turns out, almost every other researcher on the planet over the last 10 years agrees with him. It's almost like God knew what he was talking about. 
Now, if you don't believe me, try this for yourself. Uh, do some research of your own. Go online and search for the phrase cohabitation before marriage or whatever combination of those words you want to do. Cohabitation before marriage. What you will find is that while there are variations on how bad an influence on marriage various studies say it is, the data is remarkably robust and united in its conclusion that living together before marriage does not help. It hurts. It hurts. Just a taste of some of the research that's available from over the last decade or so. Uh, in the Journal of Family Psychology, Rhodes, Stanley, and Markman did a, a, a survey of over a thousand different couples. Here's what they found. Conflict increases and starts to climb steadily after a couple moves in together. Well, I, I thought that's kind of the opposite of what we were trying to do, right? And notice this, what they found. The frequency of sex jumps modestly after a couple moves in together and then declines steadily to become lower than before the transition to living together. Wait a second. I mean, a lot of, a lot of guys in particular think, oh, this is going to be physical pleasure in nirvana. Perfect. We're going to move it in. And then actually, statistically speaking, it doesn't work that way. We might scratch your head to say, well, how come? Well, another researcher, uh, Dr. Meg Jay, uh, when she wrote this, the uh, University of Virginia is where she taught. She was a teaching psychologist. She wrote an article for the New York Times. In that, she expressed that she found in her research that living together before marriage substantially increases one's odds of divorce. Huh. And then she says this, quote, women are more likely to view cohabitation as a step towards marriage, while men are more likely to see it as a way to test a relationship or, what's that last line say? Postpone commitment. Now hold on. This is supposed to be an increase of our commitment. I mean, we're moving in together, right? this This is ratcheting up. Actually, statistically speaking, And by the way, to the best of my knowledge, Dr. Meg Jay, nor the other researchers, or any of them that I read, have religious uh, funding. These are just people doing research. So there's no agenda behind this. What she found is is that actually for guys, this is not a way for them to increase their commitment to their partner. It's actually a way to avoid it. It's almost like they're living together with this person for a different reason. Who knew? Continuing on, she says, and this gender asymmetry is associated with negative interactions, yeah, of course, and lower levels of commitment, get this, even after the relationship progresses to marriage. So couples that live together first, okay, this is our trial run, this is our test run, it actually led to lower levels of commitment, and this conflict carries over into their marriages. Living together, sleeping together, it doesn't work, not just because God says so, the research actually backs it up. So I would humbly submit that it is time to be intelligent about the ever-growing rate of couples who sleep together, live together before marriage. The dramatic rise in cohabitation before marriage over the last 30 years, and it has dramatically risen, is not a sign of wisdom, but of fear. And at times, it is a sign also of manipulation for selfish ends and even sheer relational laziness. Listen carefully. At the risk of being overly blunt, if a person cannot get to know someone else sufficiently without getting into bed with them first, there is something wrong. That person needs to grow up. They need to mature. 
They need to realize that relationships that last, the ones that bring lasting joy and fulfillment and meaning, those are the ones that require work, at times hard work. They require that we pay attention to what the other person says, what they think, what they believe. It means that we treat them as a whole human being, a living soul, one that demands our respect and full attention and not just someone to have physical pleasure with. Cutting corners... By being physically intimate with someone that you do not have the courage to commit forever to first is not wise shopping or careful testing. It is self-destruction. You are quite literally harming yourself and your partner. And cogitate upon this. If your prospective spouse is willing to sleep with someone they're not married to before you get married, what makes you think they won't be willing to sleep with someone they're not married to after you get married? So if you are currently living together before marriage, in all humility, I would gently urge you to move out, to live separately. If you're sleeping together before marriage, whether you live together or not, again, I would gently encourage you to stop. And if you do this, notice carefully, making these changes, as hard as they can be, will help your relational vision to clear. You say, clear? What do you mean clear? With the misleading haze, because that's what it is, the misleading haze of premarital sex out of the way, you will now be able to see the other person more clearly, to see their true suitability for marriage, to see what your relationship is actually built upon. Is it built upon true substance that will go long term, or is it built merely on pleasure? Respect yourself. Respect your partner. Respect God. Save physical intimacy and living together for after you get married. That's the third key to finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright. There's a fourth and final one. There are more, but for our purposes this morning, there's just one more this morning. Page 443, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 5. Proverbs, the 24th chapter, verse 5, and we'll also read verse 6. Proverbs is a, a book that's a collection of wise sayings. Much of it's by uh, King Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. Uh, there's some from David here as well. Proverbs, uh, it has some wise things to say here about precisely our topic. Verse 5. A wise man has great power, and a man of knowledge increases strength. For waging war, you need guidance, and for victory, Many advisors. Let me read verse 6 again. For waging war, you need guidance. And for victory, many advisors. The fourth key to finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright is to seek counsel from wise, God-following people. Seek counsel from wise, God-following people. And, and you might be thinking, well, but wait a minute. The Bible text in Proverbs that you just read is not talking about marriage. It's talking about going to war. And I say that's precisely why it is talking about marriage. Not because you're going to war with your spouse. We hope that doesn't happen. But because the world is going to war against your marriage. What you see on TV, what Hollywood produces, our entertainment, our, our work schedules, our, the, 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 the we're so far long away from home, overindulged hobbies, etc., etc. The world is declared war on your marriage, even if it hasn't begun yet. 
And if you are going to win that war, you will need the wise counsel of people close to God who can evaluate your potential spouse. Now, some of you are thinking, are you crazy? This is my decision, Pastor Shane. I and I alone will choose who I am going to marry. And you know what? You're right. You are the only one. So don't mess it up. Why not make the best, most informed decision you can possibly make? Including by asking people that are godly and wise for their opinion. There's been many couples over the years that have asked me about this very thing. I remember one couple in particular. Uh, this was in, within the last 20 years at a church within 10,000 miles of here. Uh, I walked in the door and the church secretary said, uh, there's a couple that's waiting down in the office. Uh, so I said, okay. I went down. Door was open. I went, in, I went in the office there and I need to describe the picture here so you can kind of picture it. Uh, on the right-hand side, desk, chair, kind of usual office things. On the other side of the room, uh, there was this kind of sofa love seat thing, uh, suitable for two, right? And on the love seat were two rather young people uh, seeking to put the love into love seat, all right? They were entwined with one another. This was not Velcro. This was surgical attachment, right? They were, I mean, they were, just, they were wrapped around each other like this, okay? Like they shared an organ or something like right here. I mean, this is you know, kidneys going together. And they're looking at each other. I'm not making this up. They're looking at each other. And I'm about to throw up as I walk in the room and see this here like this, right? But yeah, I, I want to be professional. I want to be kind. So I introduce myself. say, I, I'm Pastor Shane. Uh, what's your name? They tell me their name. And I say, how can I help you? And what transpires next, uh, if, you know, knowing what I know now, I probably would have dealt with it a little bit different, but I'm just going to tell you the story how it happened, okay? I said, how can I be of help? And they looked at each other once again, batted some eyelashes, and said, we want you to perform our wedding ceremony. And I looked back at them and I said, Why? And it didn't phase him. I mean, they were too engrossed, you know, with one another. And I, uh, uh, because we love each other. And I said, no, you don't. Okay, now I had their attention, right? They said, what do you mean, no, you don't? I said, I said you don't love each other. They said, well, how do you know that? I said, well, how long have you known each other? And I don't remember the exact amount of time, but it was a matter of weeks. 17, 18 years old, the two of them. They'd known each other just for a few weeks, never met each other before, and now they wanted me to perform their wedding ceremony. And I said, no, you don't love each other. I said, there may be some lust, that's true, going between you and there, and you may be enjoying each other's physical company, but I can't imagine that there's any love yet. That takes time, more time than what you've given to each other. I said, I won't perform your, your wedding ceremony, but if you'd like, I can do some relationship counseling. We can talk about what it means to be married and you know, discuss those types of things. And they had no interest whatsoever. And that was essentially the end of the conversation, and I never saw them again. But experience is a good teacher, and I think I know what happened. Here's my guess. They were so intent on getting married, having somebody marry them, I'm going to guess that they just went down the street until they found a church that they knocked on the door and that the pastor, uh, priest, or whoever would do their wedding ceremony. And I'm going to guess that they got married, that they might have had a kid or two, and then they got divorced. That's my guess. Because that kind of marriage cannot 
last. It just doesn't work that way. And if indeed that is what happened, they could have avoided it if they had simply listened to the counsel of somebody, however ham-fisted I conveyed it, if they had just listened to the counsel of someone who had been around the track a few more times than they had been. I tell you, this separates the men from the boys, the ladies from the girls, the wishers and the whiners from the winners. If you are serious about being married forever and liking it, you need the counsel of godly, wise people. So practically speaking, this this is what this means. Uh, First of all, uh, get pre-marriage counseling. Get pre-marriage counseling. I won't perform a wedding ceremony in which, in which pre-marriage counseling has not already taken place. What's pre-marriage counseling? It's very simple. It's where you go with somebody who's qualified to do it through the basics of marriage. Uh, I recommend that you talk to a pastor or a Christian counselor. They'll take you through sometimes a battery of tests, which are extremely helpful. You learn things about yourself and about your prospective spouse. It really increases your odds of marital success. I haven't seen a recent survey. I remember 10, 20 years ago, there was a survey that was done. It showed a 20% a decrease in the likelihood of divorce if you just got pre-marriage counseling. That's astonishing. 20% 20% decrease in the odds of divorce if all you do is to get pre-marriage counseling. So do it. Do it. Darlene and I did it twice. We wanted to be sure. Secondly, ask three older, wiser, Bible-based people for their opinion on your prospective spouse. You know, if, if you have godly parents, they should be your first stop. Ask them for their advice. Believe it or not, they have known you longer than anyone else. They've seen what you've done, what you haven't done, the the habits that you form that are good, maybe the habits you form that are bad. They know these things. And if they are godly people, they are craving. I I have met one parent, but that's another sermon. Most every single parent I've ever met does not wish marital disaster on their children. They want their children to succeed. So ask them. Ask them for their opinion. If that doesn't apply in your particular situation, find three older, godly, wiser people and ask them. You know, my wife and I, in addition to getting feedback from our, our families, we did ask three older, wiser, Bible-based couples. They all gave us endorsements that ju- I mean, they, they, they lit up our faces and it was assurance. All of them said, in essence, we can see that God has brought you together. We see the things that you're doing together. We think this is a right match. It's one of the biggest reasons that when we marched down the aisle, it was one of the happiest days of our lives. We knew that God had brought us together. So you want to live happily ever after? You want to stay married forever and like it? Then start out the right way before you get married. Don't marry for love. Marry for life. Look at the practical things of life and compatibility. Take your time. Give time for those flaws to surface. Save physical intimacy for marriage. Don't sleep together or live together before you say, I do. And seek counsel from wise, God-following people. You do these things, and someday when you walk down the aisle, you too can have the assurance that this man or this woman will truly be with you happily and forever.